0: You're listening to a Roddenberry
1: podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Collide. Got Slack? Got Max? Get Collide, device security that fixes challenging problems by messaging your users on Slack. Try Collide today. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log.
0: Mission Log, A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 440, Phage.
2: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star
1: Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a little from here and a little from there in our analysis and discussion of each and every episode of Star Trek, piecing it all together to see what we can learn in the process. This week, Phage, the one about that really creamy,
2: delicious Greek yogurt. Uh,
1: Oh... Uh, John, I think you may have misread that. Uh, the episode is phage. You know, the one about the aliens who harvest organs to combat their chronic viral infection.
2: Oh. Oh, well, okay. That is a very different premise indeed. Um, excuse me, I'll just uh, change my notes a bit.
1: Yeah, see, there's phage, which is the way we pronounce this episode, and then there's Faye, which is the yogurt, although technically similar in consistency of substance of their skin, the vidians.
2: Okay, look, easy mistake to make. Uh, We will get that cleared up, uh, especially if they ever come on our show as a sponsor. It
1: is delicious, though. Mm -hmm. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments can be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now let's get back to the journey and smoothing out that kind of bumpy-ish yogurt with John Champion with this week's trivia.
2: All right, thank you. Well, trivia for this week's episode. Phage. we have a story by Timothy DeHaas. And we always love to point out those times that a Star Trek fan was able to use the open submission policy. And this is the second round for Tim. He also had the story credit way back in TNG's fourth season with Identity Crisis, and those are his only two pro-writing credits in the industry, but he does have a few acting credits to supplement that as well. The original pitch, incidentally, would have put Tom Paris as the victim of organ theft. The aliens would have taken his heart. We have a teleplay by Sky Dent and Brannon Braga. I'll mention Brannon later in my notes, and honestly, his hands are on so much of Voyager, it's hard to think of any episode that doesn't have his mark. Sky Dent, though, is a new name, and this is her single credit on Star Trek. Sky got her first degree in journalism and worked in newspaper, then pursued an MFA and started leaning toward entertainment and film. She racked up a few TV credits, but also dabbled in publicity, commercial production, and documentary film. She continues to work as an educator and freelance writer. This was directed by Wienrich Kolbe, and here he is returning for Voyager very soon after kicking things off with Caretaker. In fact, there was no break. He wrapped Caretaker and immediately went into his pre-production on this episode. Oh, and uh, a note of correction here. His name uh, was often shortened to Rick, which I stumbled over a while back and called him Rich, mea culpa. Hey, how about that asteroid? Well... Partly it's stock footage and partly it's new shots of the very same asteroid model we saw in the TNG episode, The Pegasus. And on with more of our crew spotlight this week, it's Jennifer Lynn as Kess. Jennifer is from Chicago and got her start in acting as a child, even in Shakespeare performances by the age of 13. That led to a more professional pursuit, and by 16, she was moving to New York. TV work also came pretty quickly with a recurring role on the daytime soap, another world. And it was from there that Jennifer also started landing a lot of voice work. She notably appeared in the feature film, American history X with Edward Norton Jennifer's last on-screen credit was in 2001, though she does have a production credit from 2008 on the comedy video, Greek mythology. Now, There will be more to say about Jennifer later in our run and about her role on Voyager. We will save all of that for the appropriate time. And let's talk about our guest stars. Well, welcome back to Martha Hackett playing Seska, who we discussed briefly last week. And time to meet the Vidians, uh, those who are central to the phage of today's story. First, there's Cully Fredrickson as Dareth. Cully's name may not be as familiar, but his face is unmistakable. That first Vulcan to make contact with Earth in the movie Star Trek First Contact, that's him. Now, that movie came out after this episode, but obviously we already covered it on the show. He can also be found in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Milk, and as a character voice in multiple video games, including three Star Wars titles. Then there's Stephen Rappaport as Matura. He's a multi talented actor, writer, director, singer songwriter. He's one of those people who has done it all. While this episode is pretty early in his TV career, and he does turn up in some features as well, Stephen has made a name for himself on the international stage. Everything from one-man shows to leading workshops in professional theater companies and at universities, this is Stephen's only Trek appearance. Welcome to the
0: Delta Quadrant. We can't find water, but we have mirrors bigger than a starship. This place gets weirder by the week.
1: Prologue. Voyager is en route to investigate a nearby planetoid, one that Neelix-informed Captain Janeway is rich with raw sources of dilithium, which will help alleviate Voyager's current power shortages. On the way to her private dining room for breakfast, Janeway is briefly met by Chakotay, who is supportive of Bellana's plan to create a rudimentary dilithium refinery on board the ship. The captain is getting used to fielding ideas from her crew that aren't technically Starfleet standard, but after lamenting what she desires for breakfast and faced with the reality of ration packs, it seems that she's willing to entertain new ideas. Speaking of which... As she soon walks into what was the captain's mess, Janeway is overwhelmed with smoke, fire, and chaos that was once a quiet retreat. And in the middle of it all is Neelix, who has taken it upon himself to convert the captain's dining room into a makeshift galley to serve the crew. And just before Janeway has a chance to make her disapproval crystal clear... Neelix is saved by the calm chime, as Chakotay informs them both that they are approaching the planetoid. On the bridge, Janeway is brought up to speed as the planetoid is rated as Class M, and according to B'Elanna's scans, there are substantial dilithium deposits within between 500 to 1,000 metric tons. As Chakotay assembles his away team members to depart, Neelix falls in line as well and pleads with the captain and Chakotay to join the survey mission, of which he has studied and prepared for all week. With Neelix in tow, the away team beams down to the planet and is met with a cavernous maze of corridors. As the team splits up to survey more area, Neelix is directed by his tricorder readings to an isolated area, where a shadowy figure emerges from what appears to be a holographic image of the cavern wall, and follows Neelix from a distance. Act 1 Chakotay and Kim are growing more confused and frustrated as time passes during their survey. Their tricorders are telling them that there in fact are dilithium deposits where they are surveying but their own eyes are telling them a much different story as they aren't finding any visual trace of dilithium at all neelix reports in with a similar report as he informs chakotay of a supposed huge dilithium formation as recorded by his tricorder sensors frustrated with their lack of findings chakotay orders kim and neelix to pack up their gear and return to voyager However, Neelix is still enticed with his tricorder's dilithium scans and something else that his sensors are registering, traces of organic energy. And before Neelix is able to return back to Chakotay's checkpoint, he is fired upon by the same shadowy figure that stalked him moments ago. Hearing Neelix cry out, Chakotay arrives at his location moments later and finds Neelix writhing on the floor and choking for air. When Harry arrives, Chakotay orders their immediate beam out and straight into sickbay, where the doctor scans Neelix and informs Chakotay that Neelix's lungs have been removed. After stabilizing Neelix and assessing the severity of the situation, the doctor informs Captain Janeway that due to their medical limitations, Neelix will die unless his lungs are restored, and to do that, they have to find whoever did this to him. Janeway orders for Tuvok to prepare a heavily armed security detail for her to lead down to the planetoid to do just that. Meanwhile, the doctor theorizes that the transporter pattern buffer that has the architectural data he needs to construct artificial holographic lungs, complete with the biological compatibility and the capacity to integrate with Neelix's talaxian physiology, are available. They will be sufficient enough to keep Neelix alive. However, for the holographic lungs to operate efficiently, he will have to be kept in force field stasis and computer-enhanced isolation for what could be the remainder of his natural life, or until his original lungs are recovered for reintegration. Back on the surface of the planetoid, Janeway, Tuvok, and their security team— phaser their way through a series of force field generators used to camouflage corridor entryways, and deep within one of the corridors, they discover what can only be described as some type of biological organ storage facility. But before they can catalog its contents, Janeway's tricorder picks up the trail of their fleeing life form, which evades capture yet again through another series of rock walls and force fields. Moments later, Chakotay informs Jadeway that a ship left the planetoid and immediately went into warp. However, back in sickbay, not all is lost for Neelix as the doctor activates the program Neelix 1, which slowly beams the structure for Neelix's holographic lungs directly into his chest, reducing his blood oxygen toxicity and allowing Neelix to breathe on his own. The doctor's plan, so far, is a success. Act 2. Even though he has been thoroughly informed about his current life-changing situation, and even though he has been told that unless his lungs can be recovered and restored back where they belong, Neelix is strangely most concerned with the decor, or lack thereof, of a sickbay ceiling, which he now is forced to stare at for an unknown length of time. The Doctor leaves Kess to assist with Neelix's needs, and Neelix in turn succumbs to despair and jealousy, warning Kess about Tom Paris's predatory nature. However, Kess won't hear any more of his overreacting while offering him her support and companionship. Meanwhile, Balana and Tuvok examine a very sophisticated piece of alien technology that they recovered from the base inside the planetoid. It is of unknown origin, but is incredibly sophisticated by their technological standards. It is able to scan and analyze its target's DNA sequence and then can also be used as a stun weapon to incapacitate that same target, or in this case, its prey. This gravely concerns Janeway, wondering to what end is the purpose of such a device. Perhaps she will soon get her answer as Voyager tracks down the alien escape craft from the planetoid to an artificial asteroid. Tuvok preemptively addresses Janeway's possible course of action as he admits to knowing her that well. And Janeway refuses to disappoint her friend by ordering Paris to pilot Voyager into the asteroid to find Neelix's assailant and the answers they are looking for. Act 3. As Tom gingerly pilots Voyager through the ever-tightening caverns inside the makeshift asteroid, the asteroid itself is causing sensor interference, making it all the more difficult to find the alien ship hiding somewhere inside one of these passageways. In sickbay, Neelix's despair is reaching a critical point, as he can no longer bear the incarceration he's in. The doctor is either unwilling or incapable of providing Neelix any moral or emotional comfort which only adds to the isolation Neelix is feeling. As he emotionally lashes out at the doctor and demands for his release, Neelix begins to hyperventilate, which in turn causes the holographic lungs to fail as they fall out of sync with Neelix's breathing pattern. The doctor is forced to sedate him in order to spare Neelix any further emotional trauma and despair. Meanwhile, Voyager discovers a large and cavernous chamber, which is reflecting both it and the alien ship much like being in a carnival's house of mirrors. Janeway's idea of firing a phaser at the mirrors rings true with Chakotay, as he suggests tracking a low-energy beam when it hits a solid object, namely the real alien ship. And upon doing so, the aliens, knowing they've been found out, try and escape. But the two life forms aboard the ship are caught and beamed directly to Transporter Room 3 and into Tuvok's custody. Act 4 Upon reaching the transporter room, Captain Janeway finally comes face to face with Neelix's assailants, who appear to be hideously disfigured and grotesque aliens. They introduce themselves as Dareth and Motura of the Vedian Sodality. They further explain that what they did to Neelix was out of dire necessity. Dareth tells Janeway that harvesting healthy organic matter is the only way their species can stave off the phage a genetic virus which began ravaging their planet and species over two millennia ago. They prefer to do so with freshly deceased beings, but in Motora's case, they needed Neelix's lungs immediately for Motora to survive. And to make matters worse, Neelix's lungs have now been genetically modified to only work within Motora's biology, a process that cannot be reversed. Beside herself with anger, frustration, and sympathy for their plight, Janeway composes herself and accepts that one death cannot serve another, and allows Dareth and Motora to leave freely, with the understanding that if the Vedeans try this again to any member of Voyager, they will be met with the deadliest force. Knowing that they have been granted a gift beyond generosity from Captain Janeway, Dareth and Motora offer whatever assistance they are able to give, to help alleviate Neelix's dire situation in the form of their superior medical technology, of which Janeway is well aware just how superior. And after using their medical scanner on Neelix and on the healthy subjects in sickbay, Dareth concludes that they can modify the lungs of whoever decides to be Neelix's organ donor. Kes volunteers, much to Neelix's chagrin, and does so saying that it's a gift for everything he's done for her in their past. After all is said and done, and after Kess and Neelix are resting comfortably after their surgery, the doctor offers Kess a position as his new medical assistant to hopefully replace Tom Paris, and quite possibly as his own way of saying thank you for all of the confidence and belief that she offered him throughout Neelix's medical crisis. The end. All right, Norman, thank you for Mm. the recap. Greatly appreciate it. By the way,
2: this is a rarity in mission log history where the same host does the recap back to back uh, for a number of scheduling reasons, travel reasons, etc. This is one week where we did that, and then we'll be back to our alternating the next time. Until such time in the future, we have to do it again. (laughs) <laughs> so, you never know. You never know. You right? never know. Flexibility, thy name is podcast. It's our show. We can do what right. we want. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's get right into what we saw in this episode. And uh, right away, what I saw, well, what I didn't see, but I could see it in Janeway's mind's eye. Eggs mm-hmm. Benedict with asparagus, a Yum. side of strawberries and cream. Ooh. I, she's speaking right to me. I appreciate it so yeah. much. And so sad that we didn't get to see that um, and we have the reference back to the ration packs which we know were a staple in DS9 years <laughs> but mm-hmm. now now something that's very different we now have Neelix the chef He's just taken over that room
1: so with the technology that we have, how many times did you stop and pause and kind of take a look at what actual foods that they were trying to use to look like alien foods? I think there was like blue spaghetti like we saw in Star Trek VI, I, I, the undiscovered Country. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, so I, I think there was that, and I did.
2: I did free stream a few times. Uh, first of all, uh, live flame on a set. You know, that, that, oh, yeah. that is a big deal uh, when you do that. Obviously, the smoke was probably generated. You know, you had some fog machines there. But live flame on a set is a big deal. It looked like uh, if you're looking at the screen uh, on your right, he's torching some edamame in, in, in almost like a grill pan. It's a little, yeah, it's a little weird. Um, I will say this. You know, there's so much Neelix food to come uh, right away. I do not love the uh, chef outfit. Um, you know, because it's a little, it's a little costumey. It's a little, it's a little whimsical. Like, it, Neelix already plays a bit of comic relief. We'll get into that as well in in the notes and in our discussion. But um, I feel like stuff like that, where you pick a costume that really telegraphs to the audience,
1: that never ages well. You yeah, know? I think that's like something in the '90s where they just. Said, you know what? Let's go for it. Like mm-hmm. Jake's entire wardrobe on Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. just doesn't age nope. well, no nope. right? Um, but it worked then, so mm-hmm. we're kind of like stuck in this time capsule here. I liked, I, I, I liked that the open flame was a thing because mm-hmm. it showed like obviously there was smoke in, in the captain's quarters and or the captain's dining room. But I was really concerned that there's a lot of prosthetic that Ethan is yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Latex, yeah, right. Highly flammable right. stuff.
2: Right. Well, and just on a set in general, there's stuff yeah. everywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. You got to get a, the uh, fire marshal in for that one.
1: So, for all of you scientists out there, Dr. Aaron McDonald, please. I'd <laughs> love for you to be able to speak up on this. Is a rogue planetoid, Oid, just a baby rogue planet? I mean, what does the Oid mean? Is it like Ito in Spanish where it's like mm-hmm. little? Yep. Or is it like are they just playing fast and loose with sciency stuff like Vulcan and Vulcanian <laughs> no, you know, back in the day? No, uh, here's the thing. I'll give you a little
2: uh, little hint here. Um, and and, yeah, and real scientists please also chime in. But uh, my, my layman's understanding uh, like asteroid and planetoid are almost but not quite interchangeable terms. You're talking about a small body which is an mm-hmm. orbit of a central star. Okay, this case it's rogue. So it could be anywhere, but yeah, a planetoid is just a mm. a small little planet out there, not not big enough to really be considered a planet. But those are kind of uh, vague terms, you know. it's not a hard cutoff there.
1: Okay, Seppa, so uh, I know this is like yeah. a rabbit hole that you can't wait. Folks out there don't really want to go can't down, wait. but so you have a planet and a smaller planet called a planetoid mm-hmm. so if an asteroid is called asteroid does that S- mean a larger S- asteroid is called an aster, aster. <laughs> well if it was really really tiny it's an asterisk oh <laughs> when her chicken <laughs> dinner cooked my neelix on it uh, let's chain. move on <laughs> on the, astro- not the asteroid the planetoid in the caverns i love the wrist mounted flashlights. i dig those so much love yep. those yep. right so they, they just make sense if you're going to tricorder something or if you need a phase or something. It's right there. Points like fingers, mm-hmm. which is really smart. So here's, okay, people, keep score on this scene. Mm-hmm. Neelix is on the ground. His lungs have been extracted. Kim and Chakotay are flanking him on the ground. When they are beamed into sickbay, they are beamed exactly onto the medical bed, Neelix, and then Chakotay and Harry Kim are standing <laughs> flanking him yeah on the perfectly placed Neelix on the medical bed. Yep. How does that happen? Yeah. <laughs>
2: so <laughs> so it, 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 the one thing that I thought is kind of a, uh, a a missed opportunity in some way, because you could actually say to the transporter chief, like, OK, beam up the two of us. But the person who is sick, who is prone here on the ground, beam them up and hold them in the pattern buffer for just a, a minute until we figure out what we actually need to do here. Like, you can actually buy some time,
1: I was thinking, you know. That's a good point. Why not just put him in, keep him in the pattern buffer? Yeah, you could. If he's severely injured. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. So much for me to say about this. I have many notes I, yeah. <laughs> in, uh,
2: later on that. But uh, yeah. I bet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, well, and, mm-hmm. Okay. Speaking of that and going to sickbay and this whole introduction of the the problem here, there are many scenes where you have the holographic doctor sitting down at a desk in front of a computer terminal. Why mm-hmm. is the doctor using a computer? He is the computer. The computer
1: is he. he. That is interesting. Like, though, doesn't that right? slow things down? Well, I <laughs> guess it's... Is it because... I have so much to say about that okay. later on. I'm not gonna, I don't want to steal from my nose. But the thing is, is that, you know, you, the doctor is supposed to be this physical calming presence for a patient. Hmm. That's why he appears, right? So that he can be this figure where people can turn to and say, doctor, what do I do as opposed to computer? What do I do? So maybe that's the case here. Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. I completely agree with you because yeah, you're just creating a medium of which it's slowing down the process of inputting information. Sure. And I get that, Uh, especially when you have all this tricorder stuff, the tricorder is like the workhorse so far. It's like the oh, workhorse prop totally. of this show. Yeah. So many tricorders going on. Oh, yeah, like, all the Go time. back to
2: Caretaker. Like so many tricorders in that episode. Yeah. I need to get one of those tricorder props. Great. They're gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I, I will say that there was a missed opportunity here uh, with the title. Uh, they could have just called it Neelix's Lungs to Bookend Spock's Brain. I thought that would have been a really nice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> why not?
1: two-pack DVD collector set. (laughs) Let's make it happen, (laughs) right? Exactly. Um, All the body parts, just kind of like Star Trek body parts, DVD collector set, you know, Ultimate Edition 4K rescale. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: There you go. There you go. Um, And, you know, uh, since there will be talk about holography and technology in this episode, um, it it was, it's a very novel use that they come up with. I, I like that they do this. Although Heart Lung Machines are kind of an old technology at this point. So it's not out of the question that they would have some other solution, but it was a very novel idea to introduce this technology into the situation. But I do want to refer people back to, uh, we very recently had an email from a listener that we addressed in a supplemental episode, Mm. Um, Asking, mm-hmm. like, what about using the transporter for surgery, for plastic surgery? And and here we are, not plastic surgery, necessary life-saving surgery. But, yeah, here right. you got basically your transporter being able to go, ooh, here, look, we're going to put a holographic construct inside this body, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, hey, let's not lose sight of our other characters in the episode because, obviously, there's so much more to talk about with uh, with what's happening medically in this. There is a little exchange that you must have caught Tuvok basically telling the captain, like, I know you so well that I know you're about to do something foolish. And it it really Mm harkened back to like a Spock Kirk or Spock McCoy kind of relationship, but played new. And I I really like that. I think there's a nice dynamic to be found there.
1: Yeah. exactly mm-hmm. uh, i love when when the doctor and tom paris are taking the tech to create the holographic lungs mm-hmm. i mean i think that that's a really interesting way of you know just explaining the exposition of what's happening to the audience yeah uh but the whole thing with the doctor saying that i'm using the transporter matrix to get exact specifications for neelix's lungs so if that's the case why can't they replicate neelix's lungs aside from the plot Device of saying so. Yeah. Well, exactly.
2: Well, and it would prevent us from having a really important fun moment. Uh, that great
1: slap. <laughs> great slap. Great slap. Slap. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. I wonder if uh, if Robbie was like prepared for that slap. Uh, <laughs> over time, uh, did they have to do more than one take? That'd be interesting to ask. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Maybe he commented on it uh, on Delta flyers. You know, on their podcast. Could be. So the whole thing with like Neelix, like looking up. Uh, because he's pretty much stabilized and isolated in that iron lung, mm-hmm. like looking up and saying, like, you know, really got to do something about the ceilings. Cause they're terrible. Yeah. That's a true thing. Yeah. Right. And I remember like, uh, sometimes, um, when I went to the dentist, you know, they just had very blank ceilings, like nothing on the ceiling. And it's like, you know what? A little personality would help in people's, uh, you know, uh, kind of like assuage their fears and their anxiety. If there's like a nice kind of painting or something to look at. Yeah. There's so much to there. be said about Neelix's journey
2: in this, and that played as a very real moment. It played as a very, like, mm-hmm. it was fun, but it also played very real. Like, he's got to get his mind on something else, so I don't blame him there. Um, oh, I <laughs> man, the doctor, Kess uh, uh, says to him, I thought Tom Paris was assigned to assist you. Like I said, no one to assist me.
1: <laughs> I mean, the Man. doctor
2: throwing shade right away, just right yeah. away in this little
1: relationship. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty consistently cold, like even for like a holographic program. Yeah. But I think that that's done specifically so that we can start seeing kind of like a change in an evolution of his character as a character. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. I think that... um like the the con, the the contrast and comparison between like where Neelix was at the beginning to where Neelix like is like later on towards the episode and kind of like the terror that he's going through, Ethan is really really like flexing like how good of mm-hmm. an actor he really is. yeah. Yep. Throughout this entire episode, and I think that was a very amazing scene new for him. Um, Seska's wearing gold now. Yep. With Mark the Hackett's return. She was wearing blue before, now she's wearing yep. gold. Yep, yep.
2: Um, and speaking of visuals, uh, the Vidians. Wow. That makeup is excellent and and it's probably not the most complex makeup i mean basically build a a whole head appliance and there are others that are you know many multiple parts and and have to be really seamless this you can kind of let the seams work for you because they're falling apart uh but really gruesome and original and very very effective
1: it also reminded me, like what, uh, what was it the the Sona were going through? Yes, in, in uh, insurrection, insurrection, yeah. but just a far more you know accelerated yeah. version of kind of like their own doings. The phage, in and it of itself, is like a, it's a really complex moral issue, and I'm sure we're going to mm-hmm. talk about that soon. But if the Vedians, if they were as civilized as they claimed to be, like poets and scientists and people of high culture, isn't morality the better part of a civilized culture's philosophy? As opposed to doing what they did? Or am I jumping, like, too far into... I,
2: you might be jumping a little, a little ahead. Point. Yeah, Because okay. I, I think this is part of the, the heart of the discussion of the episode.
1: Yeah. Okay. yeah. But, though, but I know you appreciate a good Dan Aykroyd. So, <laughs> the alien device, is it better than a Basmatic? It slices, it dices, it scans, it paralyzes, and it removes organs with microscopic precision and more! <laughs> Well done, Bravo! It does all that with that technology.
2: You get bonus points today, man. I I, this might also be jumping ahead a little bit, but I I gotta say, uh, Kate Mulgrew is perfect when playing the combination of anger and sympathy. That that is a tough scene to carry off and she did it admirably so uh, maybe more to say about that as we wrap things up yeah. today mm-hmm.
1: she's also flexing a lot mm-hmm. and she's flexing her understanding her immediate understanding of who Janeway is in this episode after what four episodes Yeah. yeah. so much range so much understanding uh, just so much quality in that acting and and like solidifying where Janeway's headspace is, like in all of this. Yeah, I thought that yeah. it's just amazing to
2: watch her. Speaking of characters who are growing, really nice to see Kes get her assignment the way she does. Uh, and her relationship with the doctor is really solid and getting more so over time. So I like seeing that.
1: Yeah, the relationship uh, that I think that started, like all the way back in Parallax, mm-hmm. you know, when they started talking about, like, treating him as a character. It's a nice foundation and something that we didn't get with Vic Fontaine coming so late into Deep Space Nine, you know, referencing himself as a light bulb because you know that he was so much more than that. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly.
1: Um, I I do have to wonder, as we
2: close out our observations on this episode shortly, um, how well does a humanoid adapt to having only one lung? I mean, we are talking about alien physiology here. Uh, My... Dad, the lung doctor, not within audible range right now, so I'll have to ask him later. But uh, yeah, I just thought, like, wow, they're waking up from this transplant surgery and oh, I feel a little lightheaded. Eh, it'll it'll
1: pass. Take a couple of these. Yeah. It'll be okay. Yeah. yeah. With all the technology that's in Voyager, you know, you have so much great set design and so much great production value. But did you notice the egg crate styrofoam technology that lines Neelix's iron long? I'm like
2: Yes that's that's special effects people. yeah that was well, hey you, so you gotta keep him comfortable and keep him from breaking and uh by the way just going to suggest uh since voyager has a supercomputer for a doctor and the vidians have vastly superior medical technology maybe a download before they leave there's just a suggestion
0: gut your nose, a fun game to play with babies, a bad game to play with Lt. Kerry. a worse game to play with Ferdinand's.
2: We will get
1: right back to Phage, but first, a word from this week's sponsor. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices, right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable.
2: All right, so here's what you can do. You can avoid frustrating your employees because Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. And all you have to do is you visit collide.com slash mission log to sign up today. That's k o l i d e dot com slash mission log. Enter your email when prompted to receive your free collide gift bundle after trial activation. Now, at collide, everybody knows that end users are IT admins' most significant untapped resources and the key to solving the most challenging to fix security issues, including, oh, let's see, I'll just rattle a few off the top of my head, uh, instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys. Oh, and here's one more, uh, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely. Or how about this old chestnut, convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser
1: history. We know about those. Browser Mm -hmm, extensions are bad. bad. No good. And you don't want your employees to have them either. Come on. Wonderfully articulated, John. And those are just some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. So you can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days, no credit card required. So try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. All right. In the last segment, Norman, you uh, you mentioned the, the
2: two words, the combination of words that uh, perked my ears right up because, well, it was isotropic restraint. No, no, it wasn't. It was the iron lung, Mm -hmm. a a fascinating bit of technology, uh, now fortunately out of use, um, but a a critical piece of technology nonetheless. And interesting, if people haven't seen photos of that, you know, you essentially had the patient uh, from the neck down enclosed in this long cylinder that could compress and decompress enough to get them to take a breath. But that patient is essentially trapped, uh, laying on their back, and very often they would have a mirror angled above the, the neck opening there so they could interact and they could actually kind of see the world around them a little bit. Um, so that that was the first thing that I thought of, uh, seeing Neelix in his position. Maybe I thought of that because, well, like I mentioned before, my dad, the lung doctor, this is something that I knew about from probably, you know, a, a very young age. And you can't but absolutely feel terrible for Neelix in this situation. It, it's always a tough thing in a show like Star Trek where you have your um, – your introduced cast slash crew who you know are there for the duration and you know that danger isn't really danger in some respect they're going to be back for the next episode but when you can build some sympathy for a character who's in a rough situation that really relies on that actor selling that moment and i thought that uh ethan phillips did a brilliant job of doing exactly that Mm -hmm. i want to go back to that moment that you uh you said about him looking at the ceiling It was the appropriate amount of humor for a really dire situation, and that is a very realistic thing to do. People who are in a tough situation... Gallows humor. Gallows humor. Yeah, yeah. oftentimes we'll focus on the inappropriate, the non sequitur, whatever, just to break the tension in the room. And it's a lovely bit of dialogue played out perfectly and a lovely bit of dialogue that is capped off by, I believe, this may be our our second of the Holographic Doctor using the old uh, McCoy-ism, or I'm a doctor, not a blank, and this time, decorator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lovely. Thought that was perfect. But Neelix is, um, he's going through some stuff. And what's interesting is that he has been working at his best to integrate himself into the crew. And you can talk about how realistic or how inappropriate it is that he just sort of takes over a room and the captain is unaware of this. And, you know, what that's kind of besides the point, mm-hmm. but because then you arrive at the moment that there is an accident. He is restrained and he has this very understandable reaction of helplessness followed by jealousy. There's anger in there. There are all these emotions that feel absolutely real sure. for all of us watching him.
1: Sure. And bringing up the iron lung, when I saw Mm -hmm. Neelix isolated in that restraint, you couldn't help. If you're a certain age, if you're a certain generation, you can't help but make that comparison to Mm -hmm. uh, the the polio victims of the 1950s where the iron lung came into prominence. As a matter of fact, I think there was a documentary not too long ago saying that the last of the iron lungs is failing because they don't make the parts for it anymore. Mm -hmm. And there is Mm -hmm. one polio victim left from the 1950s or 1960s that's still in an iron lung so there's also a parallel that I drew from uh, Tom Cruise's performance as Ron Kovic from Born on the Fourth of July Mm. where he was Mm. staring at his own filth because they Mm -hmm. kept him in one position for too long think about the psychosis the psychological damage that happens to a patient when they aren't stimulated with the things that stimulate normal life that give them excitement and joy living so that's this there's i know that's played off for comedy sometimes with with ethan the way he portrayed neelix at a certain point you know in his incarceration if you will but it's about what is living mm. what is happening mm-hmm. to neelix that that has stolen away the zest for Talaxian's version of life their attitude towards living i mean think about it is living just merely just staying alive hoping for the chance that, that a cure can be found. I mean, people are kept in comas for that particular reason. People are kept on breathing machines for that particular reason, because they have suffered this catastrophic illness or catastrophic accident, in this case, Neelix's lungs. Yeah. But it's a very real thing that he's going through, that he has been deprived of what makes living worth
2: living. you must have because i thought of it too and that's going back to wharf's accident in tng yes everybody remembers you know he has the the barrel the Mm -hmm. stuff in the cargo bay hits him breaks his back and then he is asking for his oh he's asking for euthanasia Mm -hmm. he's asking to uh to end his life of course the doctor won't do it but it's Partly, well, significantly cultural for him, but it also is this feeling of helplessness and he is no longer the person that he was. And it it is this very interesting question that we get into. It's like, well, in Neelix's case, this is a very short period of time, but if he's faced with even the potential reality of just laying there on this medical bed, laying there in this futuristic version of an iron lung for the rest of his existence... How long does he want that existence to go on? How long, you know, what artificial means could keep him alive if that life isn't to him worth living? Who gets to make that call? So we we didn't really spend too much time on that in this episode, uh, but the emotion was there. You could tell that that was the thing that they were uh, at least allowing that character to go through Mm -hmm. to some extent, you know? And that was this uh, the, this interesting thing about the, the doctor-patient relationship and the ethics involved, you know. So you have Neelix, who is vulnerable and going through all of the legitimate, valid emotions over uh, what's happened to him. The, the trauma, the physical trauma, the emotional trauma. I love how they let that play out. And... We can also get into the other side of the medical ethical issues going in here. The Vidians desperate to find life. And you can kind of put life in finger, finger quotes there, however they can suit themselves. Like whatever it is, they will take, they will grasp anything, including violating their own, maybe ancient at this point, set of values and ethics just to stay alive. Even if that quality
1: of life May not really be worth living. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, the ethics Mm -hmm. involved in Mm -hmm. this equation is staggering because they are basically saying the Vedians are saying, or at least these two are. We don't Mm -hmm. know how many more are there out there. We don't know if their values are the same or if they're more extreme or less extreme. I'm sure that we'll find out in time. Mm -hmm. But these two are saying that if we don't appropriate, you know. salvageable biological tissue, then we will s- cease to exist. What yeah. gives them the right to do that? That is committing murder, mm-hmm. right? They, yeah. had, they If if Neelix was the only person on that planet, on that planetoid, that was there ec- looking around, you know, uh, stumbled acro- across this ship and then his lungs were extracted, he didn't have a Hawaii team to go and put him in a bio bed and have this mm-hmm. advanced technology to keep him alive. He would have died, Yeah. right? So... What gives the Vedians the right to do that, to perpetuate the life of their own species? That nature itself, not a chemical, biological weapon or war, but nature has deemed them to suffer. That's part of the natural evolution of their species right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that's the thing. You know, they are an advanced species and they do have uh, great medical technologies, presumably which they have had to develop over all this time. But they can't quite crack this one. They can't quite get to the point that their, uh, you know, replacement organs would be viable for a long period. They still have to get replaced over time. And it has made them resort to this terrible, terrible choice. And that's what's so interesting, because the question in this episode is, how far is too far? You know, we all understand the, the need and the desire to survive and thrive. And we all understand that sometimes there are extreme circumstances. But at what point are you violating the worst possible ethics In order to just do that in order to just stay alive one more day, because remember, these are all very short term Mm -hmm.
1: uh, solutions for their problems. None of this is long term. But but I guess Um, the the big question is, is that are we applying we're applying human morality to the Vedians plate? Do the mm Vedians see it that way? Well, you know, we're
2: given little clues. We, we don't spend a whole lot of time with them, but we are given little clues about the sort of the inner lives and the history of the Videans. Mm-hmm. that you know, talk about the one who is a sculptor and they have this sense of art and imagination and relationship. You know, they they do have some sense of this and therefore you have to assume that they place some value on life and understand that that value applies to other lives that's what i think again they've yeah right but they've gotten to a point what you know that point came that said no but we can also violate this and we can also force this on other people because it keeps us alive replacing ourselves higher than the others I, I thought, it you know, it's an interesting premise here, They're, the desperate measures to face a medical threat, uh, by the way, a virus that wipes out thousands per day, that is what they are, have been faced with mm-hmm. over a long period of time. And he, he said it perfectly, it must be impossible for you to understand how any civilized people could come to this. Yeah, but also no. Mm-hmm. And that's the scary part of that equation. Because it is a yes, but it also is a no, because historically and even in the present day as we record this, we know that there are people who would go to terrible lengths who you feel like would, could, and should be civilized. But if it just gets them through the next point, just Mm -hmm. gets them to succeed that next time,
1: then they would violate their own standards
2: in order to do that.
1: I mean, there's definitely, you know— a range of choices that need to be made, you know, and obviously there are some that are extreme like it's either going to be me or you. The thing is is that I can understand that doing it to other fas i don't understand doing that to species that they've never even met before that mm-hmm. they're that they feel that they have the right in order for us to survive we have the right remember that I think that's the, the the operative phrase here we have the right to be able to take what we want in order for us to survive, whether or not we're going to survive long term just for One more day, one more hour, one more minute, we have the right to be able to cull the masses out there in space in order for us to be able to serve our needs. Well, wait,
2: don't you think that's easier for them, though, to do that to an unknown being than to a known being? I mean, if something completely or someone completely unknown to you appears out of nowhere— okay, well, w- wouldn't that be an easier target for you than maybe the species or the the however many other they've encountered that maybe they've gotten to know a little bit?
1: I mean, it's hard to I say. Mean, it, it, again, yeah. it, it plays into the morality of, you know, uh, am, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to make this choice to a perfect stranger who has a family of their own, who has loved ones of their own, who has a life? That's what they took away from yeah. Neelix. I, but I think it's easy for them to make that call because they can sort of
2: play dumb at that point. Oh, we don't know. I mean, look, this is just a being that appeared out of nowhere. We don't know if they have a family. We don't know if they've got uh, loved ones. We don't know their value on life. So we're just going to take what we think is
1: ours. Well, you know, they're a- establishing their own sort of ethical code there. That's a justification for this particular yeah. species. They're, they're trying to reframe their morality in a way where they said, well, we have to do this in order to survive. So if if people can understand that, then they'll be on board with our decision-making process, and that kind of like goes to like where Janeway was at the end, where she says, yeah, "You're forcing yeah. me to do the exact same thing that you did," and I think you yeah. know what? If I agree, I would have agreed with her if she did, Ooh. you know, take those lungs back from really? that vidian. Yes, really. Yes, because okay. it's not fair that she's but, but, put but, in but, but this but the situation. lungs Won't work, but the lungs won't work. I didn't know that at <laughs> first. <laughs> <Yeah>. That's but <laughs> no, no, I, I right? got it. Yeah. But the decision. The decision of her doing that, I have absolutely no problem with, period, because it's yeah. not the decision that she made. It was a decision she was forced to make. There's a distinction, right? Yeah. The, the vidians caused her to lose a valued member of her crew. They did this to him. She didn't do it to them.
2: I, I think we might be having a very different conversation if we knew that the lungs were viable. You know, once the Vidians had altered them, once once they had actually used them, they uh, essentially transposed them to a compatible, uh, uh, you know, biology that would work with theirs and couldn't be given back to Neelix. I think it would be a very different conversation if that were not the case. If the, the lungs were just the lungs and they were in the Vidians' body and they could be taken away then you you kind of come up with this really twisted version of the trolley problem Mm -hmm. you know that does janeway allow through her action one to die in order to save the other or through her inaction allow one to live so that the you know and the other to die but they threw this wrench in the works and the wrench in the works is say like well we're already using them they can't be they can't be reformatted they they can't be
1: reused but didn't yeah, they admit the that after she said that I can't I can't murder you to save him? I ooh that's a good question. I, I thought in the course of the story
2: that yeah, maybe that came earlier. Yeah, because
1: but, in that yeah. when they when they beamed them over, she said that I'm left with the same choice you made, whether to commit murder to save a life, which would be murdering the Vadian to take the lungs mm-hmm. back to save Neelix or allow my own crewman to die while you breathe air through his lungs. I'm like because okay, but but, but there's yeah. a you're you're allowing
2: a death. Or you are causing a murder.
1: She's not murdering anyone.
2: She's the after effect. Well, <laughs> she's... Yeah, but but she's the one saying, like, no, 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 you're standing here alive before me using those lungs. Right. If I take those from you by force, you die. They didn't belong to him anyway. <laughs> well, that's very true. Right? right. right. No, I, I understand. understand. I, but but where we are right now, where, where we are in the position right now is, is that You know, Neelix is hanging on by a thread, the Vidian is alive, but only because he stole what wasn't his. But that's the problem that Janeway faces. You well, either sure. allow a death or you
1: cause a death. Right. But that's not fair yeah. for her to make, to, to put the blame on herself, saying this is an impossible situation for me to be in. It's kind of like a mini Kobayashi Maru, but it's not ah. because <laughs> there we go. her responsibility yeah. is to Neelix, not to the Vidians. And we know that if Neelix got his lungs back, he would live a Talaxian's life. Mm-hmm. The Bideans mm-hmm. are just buying time.
2: Yeah. Right? By so- the way, that, that's our other missed opportunity uh, for the title game. What's that? Uh, How Neelix Got His Lungs Back. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, I, I want to move on a little bit because yeah. I I, we, I, think we have to talk about Kess and the Doctor because that's, I, I know that that was a, a point for you. And mm-hmm. it's one of the most interesting developments out of all of this is... Kess, which we mentioned before in previous episodes, Kess seems to be the only one with even an interest in identifying with and and relating to the Doctor as a being,
1: as opposed to just a tool, a piece of technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what I like about the development here, and then that was from Parallax, and we saw a little bit, you know, uh, in the episodes uh, in between, you know, time and again. Time and again. And what I like about it is that they're establishing a storyline which they tried to uh, they, they they tried to you know uh, establish with say Nog and Vic and it's only a paper moon in deep space nine where you have this opportunity for a character that's going to be much more than just a series of photons and force fields you know where there there's an actual opportunity mm-hmm. for a character to grow past their initial. Well, their, their initialization, actually, when it comes to the, mm-hmm. the EMH. Um, I'm going to get a little bit more into that in Morals and Meanings and Messages, because I really do think that they're establishing the opportunity for character growth from a character that becomes that representation, that external representation of the Roddenberry Star Trek ideal of the human condition, studying the human mm-hmm. condition through the Doctor. Uh, and, mm-hmm. I, and I like that, that the Doctor and Kes are having these moments, because Kes interestingly enough, is becoming that counselor character, not just for Neelix in this episode, but even for the doctor in this case. And the doctor even blames himself saying, like, I'm supposed to be the doctor, the counselor, you know, the nurse all wrapped up into one. But Cass was like, hey, 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 calm down. All right. Don't overburden yourself. You know, there are, there are plenty of responsibilities to go around. Let's just figure out how you're going to evolve past This. This. Uh, program that you are because you as she says you do learn don't you yeah right well see and that that was great that was one of the hallmarks of that is
2: recognizing that the the doctor has this capacity to learn this manufactured intelligence can learn and adopt new traits and it really is one of the most positive and interesting aspects of kes is that She's clearly very smart. She's clearly very insightful. She certainly grounds the equation of her and Neelix, (laughs) no question about it. Um, But at the same time, her level of innocence is one that it's sort of like before a person is taught a prejudice – about someone or something else. So whereas everybody else on that ship can look at the doctor and go, oh, well, I, I know where he comes from. He comes from, uh, a, you know, coded lines and binary that are projected as so many photons and a magnetic field that allows me to slap or not <laughs> slap him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was great. Um, but But it's so interesting to just remove all of that And being able to look at a character like the doctor through somebody else's eyes entirely. Uh, I think that's one of the the hallmarks of how well their relationship is written. Mm -hmm.
0: These guys have a terrible disease? Quick, let's beam them up and let them exhale that into our air circulation system.
1: So... Faye is delicious, John. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted is. to let you know. It is. Uh, it does come with uh, – it has um, an aftertaste of, of heavy morality mm. and, uh, and, and universal ethics. But overall, though, if you get the low calorie count, then it won't be too heavy on your own morality when you're done enjoying your Faye in the morning. But let's get to fish. Okay. Get to okay. Those are some <laughs> of my favorite tastes that, that go together. So, yeah. Yeah, Especially with honey. Especially with honey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, as we do with all of our episodes here on Mission Log, we look at the the structure of the episode, and then we have our observations, and we have our discussion, of which it was great. (laughs) Really, really, really great. And I'm sure there are going to be lots of messages about that. (laughs) But now we look to the... (laughs) <laughs> to the end of the episode with uh, does the episode hold up for us and then we get into the morals meanings and messages which i'm sure will even spark even more messages and emails especially for engage if you haven't sure sent us emails about that yet but let's get to the episode does it hold up for you john what
2: did you think so it's funny you know jokingly i mentioned spock's brain earlier uh but i'll come back to it here because that is a silly episode with a silly premise but, when you stop and look at what 's going on, there are some great ideas about bodily autonomy and about the needs of the many, um, which we didn 't even get into here. you know, but with phage i I kind of dismissed it on my first viewing, but for for myself because I had to, and anybody in the audience who might be dismissing it, go back and watch it again there There are so many great moments, and there are so many intriguing ideas at play here many things like about this episode. Uh, First of all, you don't even have to read the opening credits to know that Brandon Braga had a hand in it. (laughs) Um, Among the many things that he's good at, he does have a certain uh, penchant for injecting a little horror into his writing, and there's something immediately creepy about aliens harvesting organs. It's one of those episodes that makes you ask is it Star Trek with horror in it, or is it with a Star Trek setting and I'm okay with playing with the Star Trek format in that way Um, and look at this look how early it is in the series and we keep getting this good character focus Neelix can be the object of fan ire because he can be a bit of the silly misfit and therefore by default the comedy goes there a lot but Already, we're getting a real sense of sympathy for him, too. There's, there's depth. There's an emotional life. He has these deeper, complex emotions that, rather than just being the goofy guy in the kitchen. And uh, we're getting good stuff out of the doctor that is really in lesser hands could be very tricky, not just for Star Trek, but anywhere to do. And I think we're doing it well here. Now, uh, typically our characters in Trek don't criticize each other or make fun of each other. It doesn't wear well, comes across as very false and forced. But the Doctor is so unique, he can make those snarky comments and we accept it. And I I don't know if he was written like that from the original concept, but in most places, if you've got, you know, look at a generic science uh, science fiction script and it's like, put in the wisecracking robot here you're doomed from the get-go, you know? But they've found this balance here with the doctor early on. And and they've allowed him also to deal with the idea of existence and growth, which is great. Um, from a technical end, I feel like the, the trapped in the mirror sequence, which we wouldn't even talk about, it felt a little like, well, we need a cool special effect here, but it was well done. It was kind of like getting a B-plot without it really being a B-plot. And finally, ultimately, we got a Janeway speech. Hell yeah. We yeah, did. yeah, baby. Sorry. You're right, man. <laughs> yeah. She lays a smack down on some aliens, and I appreciate it so much. And it worked. It put the fear of God into the Vedians, and even made one change his mind, which by default then the other had too. That was a great moment, and it was performed so well by Kate. So uh, overall, and and I I leaned this way in the last two stories that we covered. I, I don't know if the plot itself will necessarily stick with me, but the characters keep getting strong moments and there are memorable aspects to all of this. It holds up. I'm not sure it ascends the ranks of truly like the greatest Star Trek just yet, but it it is, you know, it's getting up there. They hit so many of the marks in this. They balance the drama with humor. They effectively raise tension and they presented us with a challenging encounter with an alien that turned out to be not what it was from our initial sort of uh, conception. So Mm -hmm. good job. I'm curious to see maybe reflecting on this episode as we get deeper into Voyager, how this one holds up. What about you, my friend?
1: Well, I'm going to actually like reiterate a lot of the same sentiments and, and maybe some of the same technical notes, because at first viewing, it's a very it's a very good, very standard episode. Mm-hmm. Nothing really kind of stood out to me first viewing, but then you watch it a little bit more as we do with mission log format. And then we go and seek out the the deeper meanings and the morals and meanings and messages. And when I watched it multiple times, it became probably the most consistent episode that I've seen in Voyager so far, you know, in the handful of episodes that we've done. Mm-hmm. And even though, as, as you mentioned before, it borrows heavily from like the science fiction slash horror genre with some very healthy... Doses of tropish horror movie beats, mm-hmm. right? A lot of like kind of like the, the gotcha moments, right. you know? Yeah. Replete with, you know, the gotcha cut to commercials. What really stands out in this episode are the characterizations and how the cast and, and how the crew have gelled so quickly. There are some great interpersonal moments that really stood out. In particular, the scenes with Robert Picardo and Ethan Phillips as the doctor and Neelix. They were at odds. Uh, Neelix needed a comforting voice and a counselor to to get him through the trauma and the the, the terror that he's going through. Uh, That scene where he demands to be released from his iron lung, this is great acting. Mm -hmm. This is great acting, great stuff from these characters so early on. I mean, Ethan's performance uh, is... It, it it kind of encapsulates uh, where these two are as characters. Where the doctor is, that's maybe overly clinical and sanitary and and very cold, versus someone who's so emotionally uh, all over. The spectrum i think it's just great that these two are together to have this moment uh let's say that other character moments in this episode like tuvok staying saying that he knows the captain better than she realizes <laughs> this is a great, great, great moment. moment yeah great moment yeah. and uh that kind of like makes you uh, kind of like scratch your head and say like what does he know what are these experiences that they've had together mm-hmm. for him to be able to know her like mm-hmm. this Tom actually cares about Kess and not in an over-sexualized, ish yeah. manner. He actually yeah. cares um, in a way where Neelix was jealous because maybe Neelix doesn't know how to care for Kess yeah. in that very specific way. I liked Chakotay's consistency to back towards this play with her a whole idea of a dilithium cracking facility inside the ship. He's like, hey, think outside the box. Mm-hmm. We're not Federation. We're going to do it our way. Mm-hmm. These are these great... They're small, but they're interconnected moments that, that build this incredible tapestry that ties the ca- the, the crew and the cast together. Um, and, you know, uh, overall, though, it's, it's solid. It's a solid episode that has a solid story. And it didn't wrap up in that tidy next generation kind of way mm-hmm. where Neelix wakes up with his lungs intact. Mm-hmm. No, he has one of Cass's lungs. Uh, one of the ultimate uh, examples of sacrifice and love that she has shown to anyone on the ship is in in fact, this is, you know, probably why she and Neelix are together because she is so empathetic towards his needs. So, but yeah, it's not like she's okay. He's okay. The doctor's okay. Everyone's okay. No, there's a scar that has been laid between them. Yeah. That scar tissue of that's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be problematic in their relationship or not. So I thought that was great. And yes, Hell yes, the Janeway speech. (laughs) Hell yes, the Janeway speech. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. More of that, please. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, quite good. All right. Well, that brings us then to the, you know, morals, meanings, messages. And, uh, you know, I really – you're going to take the lead here, I know. You you got more notes here than Mm. I do on this. But um, (laughs) uh, the the thing that I – I respect in this is that there is the attempt at understanding like what the vidians Vidians have done is reprehensible. It is, uh, it is unethical. It is immoral. It is a crime in every sense that we would look at it. And yet there is this attempt in the script to allow us and allow the characters who are, are there in the room with them to try to see the why, who who are they really i mean look they are designed to look horrendous to us but what we have to do is try to see the people who they are not just the the horror of who they are um and then i you know i'm going to go back to this line again that i uh, that i picked up earlier it must be impossible for you to understand how any civilized people could come to this yes and yet no That will always and forever be our challenge, is that anytime we come across a problem that seems too insurmountable, they would have to compromise our ideals and our ethics and our values. Uh, We are one step closer to being those civilized people who turn into the monsters that we do not want to be or we say that we don't want to be. Janeway is faced with a terrible dilemma. And she realizes where her back is against the wall. And to me, you you and I may disagree on this. To me, she makes the right ethical decision in letting the Vidians go because there is no alternative. And in every case, the ends do not justify the means. Um, But I have a feeling, Norman, this is something that we may come back to uh, even further down the road in some of Janeway's decision making.
1: Now, actually, John, I agree with yep. you. I agree that she made the right ethical decision. I'm just saying that if she chose differently, I'd have, I would have supported that You based you know based solely on the predicament that she was put mm. in. You know, so I can see her. I can see and support her going either direction because one, it's the Starfleet way, but the uh, two, it's 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 a. Uh, I think it's the the human way. Mm-hmm. You know, to to react in, in, a, in a certain kind of like, it's not my fault that you put me in this situation. Yeah. I got to do the right thing. Yeah. And the right thing is to save my crewmen. Um, <clears throat> all that aside, though, I, I think that the real meaning of this episode is what we just talked about earlier in, uh, at the end of discussion uh, with Kess and the EMH. Hmm. And I think that we're establishing... What is, I think is going to be a far greater story and an examination of one of, say, Starfleet's, but more importantly, one of Star Trek's fundamental principles, and that's to explore and seek out new life. Mm. A little bit later, I'd like to steer the attention of our discussion here to one of Star Trek's finest moments, the end of A Measure of a Man, where Data is on trial for proof of his sentient existence. But let's look at, say, how Kes is... uh, how she's approaching the EMH, the Doctor. Uh Is he technology to her? Is he property? Is he just a series of photons and force fields, like Vic alludes to? Or to Kess, is the doctor capable of true sentience? She asks him, How does a how does a real doctor learn to deal with a patient's emotional problems anyway? And the doctor says they learn from experience. And Kess asks him, Aren't you capable of learning? And the doctor says, I have the capacity to accumulate and process data, yes. And then Kes says, then I guess you'll just have to learn like the rest of us. And this is what (laughs) I love about- You're a real doctor, look. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah. you're a real boy. The Pinocchio syndrome uh, applies. Yeah, yeah. Right here, the desire to be real. So this is where I love where Kes is at her writing, where they're writing her. Mm -hmm. She feels like a counselor, Mm -hmm. as I said before. Mm -hmm. She feels like, um, you know, someone that the doctor can talk to. Now, going back to- the next generation's measure of a man, which I believe is still one of the most defining moments in Star Trek history, Sure. the, the uh, debate of what is considered or not considered as sentient life, this is where John and I are going to do something a little funny. All right, all right, all right. I can't okay? wait, I can't wait. <laughs> so okay. I've put on the writer's hat in a good way, in a good way, people. Imagine, if you will, John and I reinterpreting Captain Picard's original argument for data but replace data with the EMH. So, John, the script is in front of you. If you would be so kind to perform the role of Dr. Maddox and now the doctor. Okay. And I'm not going to do this in his voice, in Patrick Stewart's voice. That's impossible. So I'm just (laughs) going to do my best here to to, to allude to this. The only shred of respect we have on this show. (laughs) Commander, would you enlighten us? What is required for sentience? Intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. Prove to the court that I am sentient. It's absurd. We all know you're sentient. So I'm sentient, but the emergency medical hologram is not. That's right. Why? Why am I sentient? Well, uh, you're self-aware. Ah, that's the second of your criteria. Let's deal with the first, Intelligence. Is the holographic doctor intelligent?
2: Yes. It has the ability to learn and understand and cope with new situations. Like this hearing? Yes.
1: What about self-awareness? What does that mean? Why am I self-aware?
2: Because you are conscious of your existence and actions. You're aware of yourself and your own ego.
1: Doctor, what are you doing now?
2: I am taking part in a legal hearing to determine my rights and status. Am I a person or property?
1: And what's at stake? My right to choose. Perhaps my very life. My rights. My status. My right to choose. My life. It seems reasonably self-aware to me, Commander. I'm waiting. So in that exchange, the way I see it, we are once again where Star Trek is at its best. When it examines the complex issues of morality, as we see with how Kess addresses and treats the Doctor, as if he is an actual sentient being. This is where we unfortunately only barely scratch the surface with Vic Fontaine, and I hope we see that there's more of this kind of introspection and moral self-examination with the doctor, challenged by Kess, to determine a greater truth about redefining life as we know it. What is more Star Trek at its core than that? Mission Log is
2: produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash/MissionLog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is MissionLogPodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. On the next Mission Log,
1: the cloud.
0: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. No, really, here, you can have your nose back, I had no idea it was detachable.